1: And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N 29.com.
2: Hey, it's Sean Eiling. Just want to let you know that the episode you're about to hear is part of a special series exploring reparations in America. The series is made possible by support from the Canopy Collective and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and it's hosted by my colleague, Fabiola Sineas.
3: I'm Fabiola Sineas, and this is the final installment of 40 Acres. So far, we've gotten into the history of activism around reparations.
4: Because never did I dream that the seeds that I was planting, that I just might be able to Stand under the shade of those trees.
3: A framework for executing them. These are individuals who can demonstrate that they are descended from at least one person who was enslaved in the United States. And have questioned if they're the way to go altogether.
4: Trying to litigate the past is just the wrong direction to take.
3: Today, we're getting less theoretical and looking at smaller local efforts of repertory justice already underway around the country and the money that's funding them.
4: That brings us to California, specifically Bruce's Beach. So Bruce's Beach is a couple of things. Folks know it as the park in Manhattan Beach, that was named Bruce's Beach back in 2007.
3: That's Kavon Ward. She's the founder and CEO of Where's My Land. It's a new organization that's putting pressure on localities to return land that was stolen from Black people.
4: The Bruces were a Black couple, arguably co-founders of Manhattan Beach, who bought two plots of land. Charles worked
5: as a dining car chef on the train between L.A. and Salt Lake City while Willa owned and managed their resort, known as Bruce's Beach, which was among the first oceanfront properties here that was owned by and servicing Black residents. It
4: was essentially a resort, a beachfront resort, that a lot of Black folks went to because they didn't have access to beach communities anywhere else, specifically up and down the West Coast. The beach community was established in about 1912, and it was ultimately taken in the 1920s. One
3: of the first words I would use to describe Kavan is passionate. She really cares about restoring property to its rightful owners. But like a lot of her neighbors, she didn't always know what Bruce's
4: beach was. Folks didn't really know about this. I I didn't know about it. I lived in Manhattan Beach and had no idea. And so when I found out about it, it was back in 2020, shortly after George Floyd was murdered. And at that time, we were in a pandemic, so we didn't go out much. And our only way of connecting with people was mostly through social media. So when I learned about what happened to George Floyd and what I saw what happened to George Floyd, I was enraged and I felt like I needed to connect to folks. That took her to a place where many of us go when we're searching for answers, online. I was a part of a bunch of different mom groups in Manhattan Beach on Facebook. And I remember myself and a couple of other Black moms posting about how Black lives don't really matter, and our posts were being deleted. So there were a couple of other mothers of different races, different ethnicities who saw that, and they stood up for us. And they said, you know what? let's start our own group. And so we started a group called Anti-Racist Moms, which was later named Anti-Racist Movements around the South Bay. And so when I learned about Bruce's Beach, it just so happened I was on this next door app and a white woman just sent it to me. And I didn't really pay much attention to it because I was just so upset about George Floyd and I couldn't really focus on it. But then when it was shared to me a second time by one of the mothers in that group, I read it fully and I became upset and I'm just, I thought to myself, like, how did I not know about this? I live in this community. How did I not know that in this very white community, Black people own land here and then were ultimately forced out? Had I known that, I would not have lived in Manhattan Beach.
3: Kavon didn't know about the historic injustice in her own neighborhood, but more and more of these histories are coming to light in many places across the country. The state of California is itself confronting its history of enslavement.
5: The California task force released an exhaustive report detailing California's role in perpetuating discrimination.
3: Evanston, Illinois is confronting its history of redlining
5: This week, the Evanston City
2: Council voted eight to one to begin to make good on its promise to spend $10 million in reparations over 10 years.
3: Dozens of universities and colleges, including Harvard, Brown, and Georgetown, are now grappling
0: with the fact that they benefited from the trade of enslaved people. 178 years ago, Georgetown was free to everyone who was able to attend. It was also massively in debt. To pay that debt, the university sold 272 slaves, the very people that helped to build the school itself. And many people
3: didn't know about the Tulsa Massacre of 1921 until it was highlighted in a show about superheroes on HBO. There were a lot of people that never even heard of Black Wall
4: Street. When I was growing up, I didn't know anything about it. And it was one of the bloodiest massacres in American soil.
3: Kavan and the other moms decided to hold a picnic on Juneteenth, 2020, to highlight what happened to the Bruces and their
4: land. So I remember on that day on Juneteenth, Patricia and Vivian Bruce, who are also descendants of the Bruces, were at that picnic. And I remember them saying, you know, I have a cousin who's doing some genealogical research on this. And I think for maybe a decade, they were looking to maybe get financial restitution for the harm caused to their ancestors. But I remember asking him if he would allow me to help them because I have a policy background. I used to be a lobbyist. I'm a poetic activist. You know, and I was like, I'd really like to help. And Kavan's fight for Bruce's beach began.
3: The search to figure out who exactly had the power to return the land.
2: Support for the gray area comes from Shopify.
3: So it's 2020, and Kavan Ward has her sights set on Bruce's Beach and returning that land to its rightful owners.
4: The first step? Figure out who exactly had the power to return it. We tried to figure out what we could do legally and legislatively within the group. And then I thought, okay, so they need a lawyer. So we introduced them to public counsel. Public counsel is a nonprofit organization here in D.C. that provides legal assistance for folks who can't really afford legal representation. So they're essentially a conduit between the law firms and the families. So we got them connected with them to help them get a lawyer. And then we tried to make changes legislatively, thinking that the city of Manhattan Beach actually had the power to give the land back. Turns out the city didn't have that power. The Bruce's owned the land, two plots of land, right on the strand, and it's now the lifeguard training facility. And so once we learned that the city of Manhattan Beach actually had no control over that land because they had transferred it to the state of California and the state of California later transferred it to the county, we knew that our approach needed to be different and need to shift. One of the things we decided to do was to have a march and a protest, a protest in front of Manhattan Beach City Hall and a march to Bruce's Beach. And that is when BLM LA helped out. The national BLM founder, Patrice Culler, stepped in and decided to help us strategically with that. And so once that happened, the city of Manhattan Beach essentially made me out to be a terrorist.
3: <laughs> and this is
4: where things took a turn both for Kavan's life and for the future of Bruce's Beach. I felt that I was a threat on my life. People impersonated me online, created false accounts, made it seem as if I was saying something that would make other people come after me. It just got really, really, really bad. And to the point where I felt like I needed to purchase a firearm to protect myself and my daughter as a single mother at Manhattan Beach. And the, the other white woman in the group were anti-gun, and they didn't like that. And so they were opposed to me getting a gun. I mean, because they didn't take into account positionality, right? Like, they were white women for the most part, not living in Manhattan Beach with husbands. So they didn't have to worry about that type of threat on their lives. And so when I learned that they were going to leave the movement because I was going to purchase a firearm, I said, you know what, you guys leave. Then I started Justice for Bruce's Beach. And that's when even more work began. We started a petition And then we started making more noise so that we could get the attention of the L.A. County Board of Supervisors. And Janice Hahn, who at the time represented that area, heard that. She heard the cries. She heard the demands. And she decided to step forward and do what was right. And she committed to making sure that policy change was created so that the land could be transferred back to the Bruces. And that's where Senator Bradford stepped in, and he created SB 796.
1: I stand before you today as the proud author of SB 796. and my 10 plus years here in the legislature, I don't think it's gonna be a more impactful bill that I can be involved with uh, in recognizing the impact that this will have on not just one particular African-American family, but it's gonna set an example of what reparations should and could look like, not here, not only here in California, but in the nation as a whole.
3: It took a lot of work to get this done, and that work wasn't initially funded. The money that helped Kavon came in the form of grants.
5: The folks who are part of Justice for Bruce's Beach and the organization Where's My Land have been working for a long, long time to make this happen. And so long before our fund existed, so I don't want to take too much credit there but what i will say is we were honored to move now two grants to this organization
3: That's Edgar Villanueva. He's an indigenous philanthropist and founder of the Decolonizing Wealth Project, an organization working to disrupt philanthropy through reparative giving. Their Case for Reparations initiative has given millions to nearly two dozen organizations that are leading campaigns to achieve reparations. And full disclosure, Edgar is on the board of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, who is supporting this podcast along with the Canopy Collective. Edgar spoke to me on behalf of his work with Decolonizing Wealth.
5: When we made the first grant to Justice for Bruce's Beach, I remember getting actually a video recording from the team there, Kavon Ward, who was just in tears and said, this is the first time we've ever received funding.
4: We have been volunteering our time and our energy for over a year. And it makes me feel amazing to be able to pay the beautiful women on my team.
5: And so folks have been doing this work for free. It's not about trying to get a grant or seeking funding. Nobody is making a lot of money off of doing reparations organizing, but this work is deeply, deeply connected to healing and what people feel like they want to need spiritually um, in order to move forward and to right a wrong, as you described, this injustice of land that was taken away.
3: Over and over, it becomes clear that one thing is at the center of reparations. Money. Money owed, money for losses. And even if capital isn't a cure-all, from Edgar's perspective, money can be medicine. Through disruptive philanthropic efforts, it can heal wounds
5: we're up against a major paradigm shift that is needed to understand that colonization actually is something that was very harmful and the impacts of global colonization and colonization that's been happening on the land here it is the erasure of cultures it is the genocide of peoples and it's all deeply connected to wealth and so when we talk about decolonizing wealth it is acknowledging that the way that wealth has been built historically is deeply connected to this force of colonization. And so to decolonize, we are acknowledging the truth of how wealth has been acquired. And we are bringing an awareness of the harm of all of that and the trauma of all all of that. And we are beginning a process of beginning to think about how we heal or repair that harm.
3: A lot of this is colored by his own background. Edgar is Lumbee, They are the survivors of several Native American tribes who lived along the coasts of North Carolina and were the first point of contact for Europeans in the late 1500s. For much of his life, Edgar says he has had to assimilate to survive. And though being Native American meant dealing with an identity crisis for much of his life, Edgar arrived at a point where he launched a journey to decolonize himself and unlearn harmful stereotypes about his Native American heritage. That also meant starting on a journey to reclaim what he believes is his people's share of resources.
5: As a Native American working in the philanthropic sector, this is a $1 trillion industry. I always held these contradictions. There's so many contradictions where, you know, this is a charitable sector, but I've always been pretty aware that the capital that I have access to is a byproduct of capitalism. Philanthropy exists because rich people, rich corporations were able to create foundations or funds, get major tax write-offs, and then some good things could happen with that money. And so I could definitely offer critique about whether or not philanthropy as it exists today in the United States should even exist or not. But again, I'm an incrementalist in a lot of ways, and so I'm like, well, I have access to this money now, what's the best I can do with it? Well, I'm supporting people who have a vision for something far more radical and amazing on the other side of all of this,
3: I asked Edgar if he thinks philanthropy can really make a big impact without assistance from the government in general.
5: Yes and no. Philanthropy has often and maybe always played a role in being a catalyst for civil rights causes. There's lots of anecdotes looking back over history where donations and Foundations have played a role in supporting advocates and organizers to see social change, but it is a small fraction of the amount of money and resources and power that is held by the federal government. So I see philanthropy as a catalyst. In the fund that we've created, the Case for Reparations Fund, that is fueled by foundations and donors who have supported us in moving the $4 million so far, those funds have been highly impactful highly impactful. And the foundations who are taking on our reparative philanthropy sort of lens have really shifted significant resources to community in a whole new way. I had a lot of discomfort as a Native person not being able to view institutional philanthropy or practice grant making in a way that aligned with those values. And over time, I got physically sick because of the contradictions. Like, I didn't even know if I could do this work. I felt like I was a part of something that was not having as much impact as it should because there wasn't a truth-telling process around what was really, really happening. Some folks say that philanthropy is sort of like a reputation laundering in some ways. And the only approach I know to move forward is to tell the truth about it, right? There's a lot of things we cannot undo, and this wealth is here now. Part of this is really coming to terms with history, and we've all inherited this history that we've got to take ownership of. We need to tell the truth. We need to name the pain. We need to sit in the grief around that. And then we need to think about, well, what can we do today with all of this wealth in the form of repair?
3: The role of money in this fight is complicated, but for all the ongoing conversations, Kavan really appreciated the help.
4: We got our first grant from the Colonizing Wealth right after the bill was signed, and it was for Justice for Bruce's Beach. So what we were allowed to do was to take some of those funds to help start Where Is My Land. We used it as seed money for Where Is My Land, and they essentially just gave us another round of funds so that we can keep hiring the people that we need. One of the things that people don't understand is that Black people are tired of working for free. We are not your slaves anymore. Yes, we're doing great work, but it comes at an expense. We need to live above the poverty line. And so the funds are important because it allows for me to ramp up and hire the people I need to, to implement my vision. What they're saying is we're gonna give you this money and we trust that you as a Black person will use it to do what you need to do to get what it is that Black people need.
3: Coming up, what Bruce's speech could mean for Black families across the country.
1: Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge...
3: When we left off, we were talking about Bruce's Beach, reparations, and the money it takes to make grassroots work work. Here's Edgar Villanueva.
5: When we look at data specifically for the Black community, we know that it would take 200 years for the average Black family to have the same amount of wealth as the average white family. That comes specifically as a result of what has happened in the history of the United States around slavery. Poverty in this country as it exists, exists as a product of public policy and theft. And all of that has been facilitated by white supremacy. And so slavery was something that was allowed by public policy. Public policy support endorsed and expanded the opportunity for uh, enslavement. And then it also came about by theft. You know, in this country's history, literally bodies were stolen, were taken. Literally land was taken from indigenous folks. And all of this was happening because of this ideology of white supremacy which allowed folks to see Black and other folks as less than human.
3: The fight for reparations has been long and hard. And the opinions on how they would work are as vast and as different as the diaspora itself. I asked Yvonne if she considers Bruce's Beach to be reparations.
4: So technically, this is repairing a harm, but it's not based off of what the definition within the movement is. Within the movement, folks are saying, you know, this is for descendants of slaves who were held back as a result of a failed Reconstruction era and the Jim Crow era and all those things. But this is not about enslaved people not having the opportunity. These people, despite their ancestors being enslaved, were able to own land and create a successful business. So if you look at it that way, this is not reparations. This is reparative justice. This is returning what was taken from a people. I don't know if the movement believes that this should be included in it, but in either case, you know, it doesn't matter to me. I'm just focused on getting land back to Black people where land was pillaged from them.
3: One of the things that's unique about Bruce's Beach is that there was a paper trail of ownership over the decades. It's obvious that this land, worth $21 million today, belongs to this family. I ask Yvonne how she sees this being replicated in other places.
4: I feel hopeful because I feel like there are enough people within power who are willing to do the right thing. And I think that Black people are becoming more conscious of what happened to us in the past and are wanting to do something because they understand that unless we create some policy change to correct past harms, we will continue to be harmed. And so... While the Bruce's case was special and that, like you said, there was a paper trail. There was evidence. There are a lot of cases. We have about 500 cases now in my organization of people who have had land stolen from them. And in some cases, they can't prove it because paperwork was burned down. Things are not available electronically. There's just so many barriers and roadblocks there that prevent Black people from proving that they own land despite oral history and despite them having, even some of them having deeds passed down in Bibles. (laughs) You know, despite all of that, they have not had any justice. And the sad part about it is that in most of these states, specifically Mississippi and Alabama, they have the proof. They've gone to the court to fight for their land back and were met with, with resistance. They have no more remedy to go after in the courts because they've exhausted all of them. And so they can't appeal anymore. And so here they sit with this evidence within a state, a racist state, that refuses to do anything to correct that harm.
3: For Edgar, reparations are a necessary part of righting past wrongs. But there's an emotional and even spiritual aspect to them as well. Edgar believes that there are seven steps to healing.
5: The seven steps are grounded in indigenous wisdom and practice. And it begins with the first step being grieve. And grieve is about stopping and feeling the hurts that we've endured. The second step is apologize. Apologizing for the hurts that we've caused, really taking ownership for what has gone down and making real commitments to the truth of what has happened. The third step is listen. Listening is about acknowledging the wisdom of folks who have been exploited and have been excluded by the system in history. And really understanding that those of us who have possess exactly the perspective and wisdom that's needed to fix it. It's then we can get to the fourth step of relate. And relate is sharing our whole selves with each other and understanding that we don't have to agree in order to respect each other. The next step is represent. Represent is about building whole new decision-making tables rather than setting token places at the colonial tables as an afterthought. And then the last two steps, invest and repair, are really very action-oriented and really connect to the idea of reparations. Invest is about putting all of our money where our values are. And this is where, you know, I'll use philanthropy as an example. It's not just about making good grants or giving some money to black organizations, but it's also thinking about all the other money, the endowments, the investment funds. Where are we putting money that is building wealth that may continue to be harming people? And then finally, repair is using money to heal where people are hurting and to stop more hurt from happening. And this is when we really get into the place of using money as medicine and paying reparations and really allowing folks to exercise their own self-determination and how they use resources. It's also participating in commitments of policy change that ensure that that harm does not happen to those people anymore.
3: So, back to Bruce's beach, where 7,000 square feet of land have been returned to the Bruce family. I asked Kavon what
4: it was like when she succeeded. When it happened, you know, people always ask, like, did you believe that this would happen? And in my spirit and in my soul, yes, I've always believed it could happen. I believed it could happen on that first day, on Juneteenth, 2020, when I said I wanted it to happen. I believed it could happen. So, depending on your definition of
3: reparations, they are happening. In some corners of the country, the 40-acre promise is being made good for some people. But Kavon says
4: that's not enough. There's a big push on a national level, but still, Joe Biden isn't doing what he needs to do. This executive order, because Congress isn't doing what they need to do. Congress hasn't done what they need to do around H.R. 40 since 1989. I think the best thing politicians can do is to not allow this to be a political thing. This is a right versus a wrong. We were harmed. We continue to be harmed. And unless they step in and do something aggressive, we will continue to be harmed. And so I say remove politics. So what if you lose your seat? So what if you lose your seat here on this earth in Congress? So what? because you've done the right thing. And it's time for politicians to look at it from a bigger, a higher level, a spiritual level.
3: Whether you believe reparations are a policy idea whose time has come, or an idea whose time will never come, It's clear this conversation will keep happening. As long as inequality persists, we'll keep searching for ways to close the gaps. There's no doubt that America has harmed Black Americans, but we're unsure if or when adequate redress will come. It may take the form of reparations or something else entirely. These conversations reveal that progress does happen, albeit slowly. Thanks so much for listening. This episode was produced by John Quillen Hill. The Vox Conversations team includes Eric Janikis and Amy Drozdowska. Patrick Boyd mixed and mastered this episode. And Am Hall is our Deputy Editorial Director.